You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Mark chapter 7 verses 8 and 9. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There are a handful of things in this Gospel passage this morning that um, are rich in their first century context, things which are no longer around today and which warrant a little bit of uh, explanation of just what on earth is happening in the exchange that we just heard between Jesus and the Pharisees. So I want to spend uh, the first half of our time together just looking at what really transpired in the Gospel that we just heard and then see how it indexes on to our own lives in practicing religion today. So the first thing, right, is that the Pharisees uh, see that Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands and their bowls and stuff and all these ritual washings, which is what the Pharisees did, as um, Mark, the Gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, explains. Right? The Holy Spirit actually knew that this particular tradition would fade out of history, so we have a little historical explainer right there. This is the custom of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The Pharisees, who presumed to be true teachers of Israel, came to Jesus, who they recognized as a teacher of Israel, and they said, we do all these traditions, why aren't you and your disciples doing them? And uh, just to be clear, when it talks, you heard that phrase, tradition of the elders, um, nowhere in the whole Old Testament does it say that before you eat a meal, you have to wash your hands. I mean, it's a fine hygienic practice, um, encouraged today, generally, um, but it's not God's law. God didn't lay out, you must wash your hands before you eat a meal. He didn't lay out that you have to wash your bowls and wash yourself after the marketplace. Um, those were traditions that the Pharisees of Jesus' day had invented. Now, the Old Testament does say, you might think, well, I thought there were some washings in the Old Testament, and indeed there are, but all of the washings prescribed in the Old Testament um, are for the priests when they make a sacrifice, that they have to do a ritual hand washing and a bowl washing and whatnot, but it's part of the temple worship. So the Pharisees took what the Old Testament had prescribed uh, for the temple and they sort of extended it. You can actually see there was maybe even a pious motivation at one point. Well, if it was good for the temple, well, let's, um, let's do it in regular life. Let's, let's wash our hands. But what had perhaps began in earnest had become this sort of legalistic tradition which the Pharisees were holding to with enough rigor that they would accuse Jesus for, for not doing it. When presented with this, Jesus quotes to them the prophet Isaiah. This is found in Isaiah chapter 29. You could flip back and see that Jesus is just quoting the prophet that really he himself had sent 600 years before. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus, is, as we hear in the Gospels, it says he knew what was in a man. So he knew what they were doing. He knew that their desire to wash their hands and wash their bowls wasn't really because they loved God and with their hearts they just wanted to serve him with every part of their life. They had established this tradition as this sort of rote piece of religion that actually was opposed to a true religion of the heart, true worship of the heart. If the Pharisees' hearts were more truly inclined to serve God, they would have accepted Jesus and recognized him as the Messiah that he was, which of course they didn't. And what Jesus is pointing out is that their rigid attention to traditions that they had invented 
actually functionally boxed out, left no room for a true earnest heart religion of interior devotion to the living God. So that's that first exchange. The Pharisees accuse Jesus and Jesus says, look, you've missed the more, far more important thing, the commandment of God, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, um, to keep your soul with diligence, as we heard in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, and instead they were paying attention to the washings of bowls. So the Pharisees sort of threw the gauntlet down um, and Jesus sort of says like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll see your washing and I'll raise you. <laughs> and he brings up, he says, you know, while we're on this theme, this is a particular habit you guys have developed. And he brings up this uh, more egregious example where a man-made tradition had sort of eclipsed and actually pushed out entirely a clear commandment of God, the tradition of Korban, um, which is very briefly explained in the Gospel passage, but if you blinked, you might have missed it. Korban was something that in the first century the Pharisees again had invented that um, under sort of the way they had received Moses' law, they plainly understood the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, to mean in their old age, take care of them financially if they can't themselves. There was a duty. Still kind of exists, it's kind of a deep cultural intuition today, right? If, if mum or dad needs help, you, you help them out. You help them get their situation sorted, you do what's needed. Same thing then as now. But it wasn't just out of a sense of, well, it's right. It was obedience to God who said, honor father and mother. So this was, a, this was plain as day and was, and was uh, ubiquitous among the Jewish people. But the Pharisees said, you know, that money which really you owe a debt of love to mom and dad and God commanded you, that money you would give to mom and dad, if you take that money and you say, it's Korban, and you just have to say it once out loud, it's Korban, meaning you're dedicating it to God, you don't have to give it to your parents anymore. Which sounds like it might be pious, but what was really tricky is the way they teased out Korban was if you said something was Korban, you could still tap into it as long as you needed it. Right? So you said, this is God's, and then you could keep you spending yourself out of it, and if there's anything left, well, at the end it would go to the temple. It's like a, I don't know, I don't know anything about the world of finance, but like an IRA where you can take deductions. I don't know, actually. No. So I don't know how that works. But anyways, you could take money out of your korban and then give it to God. So you're, you're disobeying God. Your parents aren't getting supported. You win this sort of fame for, it sounds so pious, I give this money to God. And then functionally, you're the one who's just still spending it like it's yours. So what might have had the sort of air of piety that the Pharisees had created, this concept of korban, functionally, the people were using to just break the fifth commandment and not honor father and mother. So the Pharisees have thrown down the gauntlet of the washing. Jesus is answered with bringing up this issue of korban. And then sort of while this topic of cleanness and uncleanness and things dedicated is kind of on the table, pun intended for washing of bowls and stuff, um, Jesus seizes the moment and actually declares authoritatively as the God of Israel the true meaning of all the cleanliness codes in the Old Testament. And he says, look, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out that makes you unclean. That a moral uncleanliness, which we are all born into and with, right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and out of the heart come that long list of vices that are gross just to read in long succession, right? Adultery, theft, covetousness, idolatry, murder, all these things. It's like, ugh. Um, that comes out of the heart. And that is a far greater moment, so much more importance before God to be dealt with. These things about this food is clean or this food is unclean, 
That was supposed to teach you that God cares about cleanliness, but he cares about the cleanliness of the heart. It was a teaching tool, as Paul would say, inspired by the Spirit in Galatians. It was like a, like a, a nurse who could raise you up. It was a temporary teaching tool. So Jesus says, in saying this, declared all foods clean. This is actually the reason we are free from the Old Testament food laws right now. Not because someone said, oh, those are just too cumbersome. Right? That would be to disobey God's law. But because the giver of the law, God himself, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, said, nope, from now on all foods are clean. That was a teaching tool. What God cares about is that your heart gets washed. Not your fingers and the bowls, but your inner man. As he would say through Paul to Ephesians, as we heard last week, the washing of water with the word is what is needed to cleanse our souls and our hearts. So what's happening in some, in this gospel, we also hear echoed in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, God commands, you shall not add to the word that I command you, right, do not add, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Do not add or do not take away. Where else do we hear that in scripture? The end of Revelation, right? The very end of the revelation given to John says, Cursed be anyone who adds or takes away from this word. So this is a theme. We hear it in Moses. We hear it at the very last book of the Bible. Um, and it's the theme that's at play in Jesus' teaching today. Because when we try and add something to the word of God, that thing, if it's a man-made tradition, could very well box out and push away the plain word of God that, that he's given. We can never make our own traditions authoritative like the way God's word is authoritative. And we actually need to be very careful about human tradition because when we add something of human, it will often take away from something that God's given us to do. Um, and this is all not very explicitly done when it happens. Right? The Pharisees, if they'd have come out and said, we just want you to ignore the fifth commandment, here's a new idea. Right? No one would have followed it. We need to look at how these things play out functionally. Well, in honoring this tradition, the fifth commandment gets neglected. And to sort of analyze the traditions of men, how they function. The, um, in this way, the ignoring of the commandment of God is, has this sort of refined air. That's what Jesus is saying. You have a fine way. Fine is a de derisive word there. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your man-made tradition. So this is the pattern, right? You establish the tradition of hand-washing and you can ignore that God wants your hearts. They established, the Pharisees established the tradition of korban and the commandment of God to honor your father and mother gets disobeyed. Right? So you've seen this pattern. Human tradition, here, I'll do it in space. Human tradition, which then pushes out the clear commandment of God. Let's use that same lens to examine the church of our own day. There are many, many portions of God's church, including our own church from time to time in our history. I don't just mean this parish, but like our larger Anglican church, um, that have succumbed to the same mistakes as the Pharisees. Right? We've not, the church has not done a great job in history at listening to the plain teaching of our Lord in Mark chapter 7. So there are churches who invent elaborate human traditions of devotions to the saints 
and to Mary. And they even mean well. There's even initial intent with the lips to, to, to honor God. But if we pay too much attention to this human tradition very clearly, we can functionally push away the very clear commandment of God to worship God alone. So people defend, well, I'm, I'm not trying to worship a saint with the honor I give to God, but what we define and what we do you know, aren't always on the same page. The, as a matter of fact, we've seen it, this is what prompted the Reformation, right, in, in, in part, was honoring the traditions of men and failing to worship the one true God as he commanded so clearly uh, throughout the Old Testament, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 5. If we look to a saint for help, can't we overlook the fact that God says very clearly, there is one mediator between God and man. There's one person who can bring you good things from heaven down into your life, the man Jesus Christ. So the man-made tradition of honoring the saints has actually pushed out and, and, and actually broken the clear commandment of God to only honor one mediator. On the sort of, in other portions of the church, there's been such an emphasis on preaching, which is good, it's good to emphasize preaching, but there's become a human tradition that communion's not that important and maybe the church doesn't even need it. And that human tradition then flies in the face of the words our Lord said, do this, a command verb, do this. Communion is something the Lord wants us to do. It's divinely given to his church. And human tradition has sometimes pushed it away, claiming to honor preaching, but actually pushed it away. There are some churches who, um, in rightly emphasizing that every one of us needs to individually respond to God, have then made up this human tradition of saying, you don't really need to go to church. But what does the word of God itself say? Hebrews chapter 10, command. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Right? So the Bible is really clear. And then we invent this human tradition. Oh, well, I don't need to be church for a Christian. It's like, well, the Bible says you need to go to church if you're a Christian. There are other portions of the church that trying to have compassion on the marginalized, which is biblical, absolutely, have then gone on to ha- create this human tradition that you can bless any old kind of marriage that you want in the, against the plain meaning of Scripture when, for instance, in 1 Timothy, as other places, it says, those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Scripture says one thing, and we make up a human tradition, often well-meaning, which then pushes away the Scriptures. And these are just five cases that i sort of been praying was sort of led to put forward. There are others, right? Maybe there's some that you've fallen prey to in the past. Maybe there's some that you see in the churches that you encounter. In every case, we have this apparent terrible human um, proclivity to create and latch onto man-made things and ignore God-made things. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for that, and he condemns the church when we fall into that same pattern. So, How do we avoid this mistake and the condemnation? How do we avoid replacing the clear word of God with the traditions of men? The answer is by clinging to God's command. By clinging to his word, which means reading the Bible and listening to it and knowing it and remembering it and above all, obeying it. If you read carefully in Deuteronomy 4, it's clear that it's obeying the commandments of God 
that allow the word to be really kept. Because if we disobey the commandment of God, if the Bible says, don't do it and we do it, or it says, do it and we neglect it, we actually stuff up our ears to be able to even hear what the word is saying. We can't even discern what is God's truth if we are consciously disobeying portions of it. So we need to cling to God's word. Um, For long centuries, Psalm 119 was said the whole thing by many portions of the church almost every day. And what is the, the recurring theme of Psalm 119? Lord, I have loved your commandments. I have clung fast to your ordinances. I have kept pure your decrees. I have loved your word with my whole heart. Like, that's just those four lines basically remixed for 160 verses. There's more in there as well. But it's just this overwhelming love of like, Lord, I don't want to stray even an iota. I don't want to add to your word and I don't want to take away. I want to keep it. In keeping God's word, we then um, immunize ourselves from sort of being tricked by the traditions of men. And so we need to run all practices and all traditions and all teaching through the lens of, is it in accord with the word of God? Including my own. I'm just a regular guy. It's actually, I hope this story encourages you and doesn't discourage you. It's happened in this church where I preach something and a brother in this congregation came to me and said, you know, that one phrase you said, it seems to really go against the plain teaching of Romans chapter 8. And we read Romans chapter 8 together or remembered what the content and, and I was like, you're right. I actually overstated a traditional language out of sort of the preaching tradition, which which does go against the plain meaning of the gospel. And so then in subsequent sermons, unbeknownst to you, I corrected myself by, by hammering in the clear teaching of the grace of God as it's manifest in, in, in the book of Romans. So a brother, because we are all God's people, we all have the Holy Spirit, the magnitude of that is such that the prophets would say, we don't even need any teachers anymore. So what that means is I'm not above correction. If, if I say something or I'm doing something and you say... I think this adds, you know, replaces the word of God with human tradition. Please show me. And let's study the word of God together. And there are some scriptures which take a lot of sort of work and carefulness to unpack, but if we are all committed to the scriptures and to focusing on the scriptures, I trust that the Holy Spirit in our midst will guide us together. And we will be led into all truth as Jesus promised. We'll be led into all truth. But we'll only be led into all truth if we put the scriptures and nothing but the scriptures as the bedrock of what God has commanded us to do. Everything else uh, is of secondary importance and potentially dangerous of making too much of. Um, What's funny about this, I realize, is I grew up in a tradition where 16-year-old me had walked into the Good Shepherd. I would have seen some of this and been like, "Eh, traditions of men, I see. Um, and of course, it, you know, the Bible doesn't say have this many candles or make sure that you have this woodwork or fabric. Now, these are just traditions. But the Bible does say to celebrate communion. As St. Paul says, as often as you do it, you know, that, that there's, as often as you gather to celebrate communion, it's kind of implied in 1 Corinthians 10. So, and we know that communion, as I've been teaching on in recent sermons, the scripture says is a participation in the body of Christ. As Jesus himself said, even more simply, it is his body and his blood. So where Jesus is, well, that's a very special place. So a special place we put ornament on. This is actually all just accoutrement 
everything that's sort of made of man, the liturgy, the fabrics, the, these things, these are just trying to point to the biblical truth that Christ is really present in communion. He really gives himself to us, and we should celebrate that. But all of this could change as it's changed through the centuries, the colors and some of the shapes and some of the accoutrement. Um, and in fact, if we make too much of the accoutrement, and this is what's great about, I think, what we see in our Anglican heritage, you can make too much of the accoutrement. Some of you may have been to churches which have so much sort of accoutrement that the fact that Jesus, that Holy Communion is the central focus can get lost. Um, and so there's often this sort of pushback of the sort of human traditions and practices that accrue, letting the Word of God always kind of prune them back if they overgrow, and sort of testing them from time to time. Does this really serve? So when, when Latin ceased to be the main language of Europe and people understood it less and less, the church needed to say, well, then let's change the language of communion so that people understand it. Right? Change, making sure that the traditions never eclipse, never push away the word of God, the plain commandments that he's given us. Ultimately, we need to ask for God's help. Right? You'll notice that just about every sermon I preach ends on that note because it's the great theme of the Christian life. That there's nothing we can believe or pray or do or stay faithful to without God's help. And I love that that was our collect this morning. God, give us your grace before us, before we even get somewhere, and behind us, sort of following up on sort of our foibled works, that you would refine them and use them nevertheless. That on all sides, you yourself, God, would be our help and our guide to understanding truth, to staying faithful to the word, and to living it out individually and as a church together. So I pray that with God's help, we would, as the Good Shepherd, and each in each of your lives, never eclipse even a one of God's commandments with any tradition of man. Amen.